Imagine Christmas is over. All the programs have been performed. All the pictures have been taken. The carolers are done singing. The holiday parties have come and gone. The presents are unwrapped. And the big dinners have all been eaten. The Christmas music is turned off. The family's headed back home. Someone from work is on the phone. The kids have a practice to get to. The house needs to be cleaned. The bills still need to be paid. The groceries are running low. The stock market is still down and up and down. The TV is still on. The news is still worrisome. Life just keeps going as if Christmas never happened. But it did happen. Look around. The church is full of family and friends and laughter. Because the baby is still the Savior. And the Savior is still the gift held out. To a world still looking for joy, an earth still waiting for peace, and the peaceful still sing in wonder of the God who gave his son, and the son who gave his life to add us to his family, and one day welcome us home. Imagine. Christmas is over. But remember that it really happened. And it changed everything. It was a little over 2,000 years ago that the event happened. All of the decorations that we see that try to simulate it, the songs that try to capture it, all, all of the stuff that went together into that night or that day, whatever moment in the 24-hour cycle it may have been. For some, it's a good story. A good story that maybe just wells up a certain degree of sentimentality or, or warmth in the heart or creates the, the proper amount of mirth necessary for the season. For others, it's an oddity of history. Something fascinating and interesting that's shrouded back in the past of which we have just recorded glimpses of today giving us a sense that something happened. 
And for some, it's something more. These past few weeks, we've been asking the question, why? Specifically, why we do these things that we do at Christmas. But today, today I just wanted to go personal with you and share with you why I believe. There's dozens of reasons that I could list. And honestly, there's probably dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds more, that I'm unaware of. And while I don't have time to give you the, the complete tapestry today, what I'd like to do is just give you a sampling, a sampling of why I believe. I cannot remember a time when I have not believed in God nor in his Christ. I really credit my mom above most others for this. Because when I was young, God was a part of our family. Jesus was not someone that we just talked about or went to church to hear about on Sunday. He was as regular a part of the family as having a brother there with you. God was as regular a part of our family as having a dad there. We, we talked to him. And we listened to him. We spent time with him and wrestled in our relationship with him. We, we saw him do stuff and work and we learned what it meant to, to rely on him. There wasn't a time I don't remember believing in God because it would be like saying I don't believe in my mom. He was just there and, and a part of it. Now, my parents divorced when I was two. And I lived with my mom, but dad was always an active part of my life, seeing him during the week and, and of course, on weekends. For my mom, God was a part of the family. God was real. It's where she planted her feet, and it's where she gained her perspective in her worldview. My dad was a man who had rejected it all, who grew up immersed in some of the worst of Christianity. And after 16 years, all the way through college of Christian education, ran screaming from it as fast as he could, priding himself instead as being an intellectual, a humanist. And someone secular, and from the earliest of age that I could remember, I grew up in these two very different worlds. I grew up in my mom's world, 
with the presence of this, 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 this God, and I grew up in my dad's world that had no space or no room really for him. And these two worlds were interesting because life at my mom's house was nothing perfect, I tell you. It was chaotic and crazy, and there was immersion in sin, and there were issues to be dealt with, but somehow and in some way, God was there. My dad's house was perfect, if you can use that word as a veneer. Moderately wealthy and always clean and very orderly and doing all the right things. Yet cold. Distant. Never really feeling alive or at home there. And while I couldn't articulate it at the time, I knew from a very early age which of these two worlds that I wanted. Now, as a a young boy, I was exposed very, very early on to death and to suffering. My mom was close with her mom, and so I was close with my grandma, too. We would go and visit her every Sunday after church. She lived around Austin and Cicero, yes, that neighborhood, if you know it. She was the only house left standing in about a city block, and the city attempted again and again to drive her out, and she was a stubborn old German Kraut, who wasn't going to move. This was her home, and she didn't care what the neighborhood did around her. She was staying. I remember taking walks with my grandma. And to me, this was normal. She was about five foot nothing and 200 pounds, I swear. <laughs> and we would go walk the neighborhood, and she would have like one of those like, 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 like homeless lady carts you know, that we would walk around with, and we'd go garbage picking, and that was fun. That was the best, the treasures we found out there. And she would walk with this cane through which she had nails driven through the end. I always thought it was to pick up the trash easier, but when you're attacked a couple of times, you drive nails through the end of your cane as well. I remember playing in her car. She had one of these garden claws, which she sharpened down the tips in case anyone tried to smash and grab, she was going to show them who was boss. Welcome to my childhood explains a lot, doesn't it? From before I was born, she was racked with cancer. And her doctor told her it was arthritis. And over the course of 20 years, she was in and out of hospitals, in and out of treatments, as it would pop up here, as it would pop up there, and basically infested her. I don't really remember much of my grandma pre-cancer years. But what I do remember is as a four-year-old boy going to Oak Park Hospital, it doesn't exist anymore, thank God, going to Oak Park Hospital when the policy was you had to be 12 or older back in the day, being taught how to lie and deceive by my mom to sneak past the nurses and get up and to be able to look a grown nurse in the eye and go, yeah, I'm 10, 
and walk right down the hall so I could see my grandma before she gave her dying breath. And from a very early age, I saw what it was like to suffer. I saw what it was like to die. I saw what it was like for someone to lose their soulmate, for someone to lose their best friend, for someone to lose that person in their life. It's the rock, you know what I mean? Their anchor. And I couldn't articulate at the time, but looking back, that has an effect on you when you're a little kid. And I remember having this, 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 this constant state of anxiety of what if something happened to my mom as well? Maybe it wouldn't be cancer, but we know things happen. What if something would happen to her as well? And as one who loves to play out every scenario in his head, oh, I devised every way that she could be taken and that I, as a four and five and seven and ten-year-old boy, would be powerless to do anything against it. I remember people telling me things like, don't worry Don't worry, that's not going to happen. And I remember thinking, how can you say that? You can't tell me it's not going to happen. I've seen it. I remember feeling that sense of hopelessness. At a very early age, standing in a place knowing that everything that mattered, the people who mattered most, could be taken away from you in an instant. And alongside that, I found something in this God who was a part of our family. I found hope. Not hope that we would be protected from everything. Not hope that bad things couldn't or wouldn't happen to us as well. But hope that said even if they did. This is not all there is to the story. There is something more. It was an invitation though. It can't really even articulate it that way. It was a sense that God was inviting me to believe something fantastic that the world seemed to be latent with and humming with. He gave me a way to find strength and confidence and someone to turn to who could make a difference, who could interject, who could come down into any situation to protect to heal, to save, and that he had the power to do it. And then there was the time that God talked to me. It's weird, I know. It was actually this day. It was Christmas Eve, 1990. 
I remember my dad dropped me off after we did Christmas Eve at his house, because we did Christmas Eve at my dad's house, and then he would drop me at church, and then we would do Christmas Day with, with my mom. And I remember going to Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois, and getting dropped off for that 11 p.m. candlelight service. Can we just say, the absolute coolest service of the year, when all the lights are dark, and there's this just vibration, this hum you know what I mean, those of you who have experienced it in the air, and you're poised, and there's this quiet, but a quiet that isn't a quiet that just fades away, but a quiet that's pregnant with something that's about to give birth. And, and I remember the, the carols and holding the candle, and I remember coming out of that service that night. It was about 12 o'clock. It was Elmhurst, Illinois, so it's all these Tudor-style homes which were decorated perfectly. I kid you not, it was like this right now. The snow was coming down at the very perfect 30-degree angle. You know what I mean? It was like this Norman Rockwell night that was served up on a platter. And I remember coming out of that and just feeling this, this deep inner sense of I don't know what to call it, peace, joy, contentment, intimacy. For someone who lives with anxiety every day of his life, this feeling of just complete, <sighs> feeling so connected to God, just immersed and all that that night meant regarding what he did so long ago. And then he decided to speak up. And he said three words to me. Become a pastor. And all that peace and all that joy and all that intimacy, it left the building. <laughs> Some of you know this, but many of you don't. I never wanted this gig. And at that point in my life, I mean, I had the trajectory of my life figured out. I knew I was going one of these two places, and I had the steps, and, and I was ready. This was the last thing I ever wanted to do. Because church is boring, and pastors are boring, and they're 65, no offense, all right? And bald, no offense, and pasty, no offense. It's not what I want to do. And I remember crying out, God, you can't do this. To no, no. And the snow literally stopped midway in the air as I cried out to God that I don't want to be a pastor. You can't do this to me. And I remember wrestling. And I remember trying to rationalize. And I remember trying to fight it. And I remember trying to resist it. And I remember trying to do everything in my power to make it go away and bring those feelings back that I wanted so bad. And I hit a point and I realized something. They weren't coming back. They weren't coming back until I would say uncle. Know what I mean? 
they weren't going to come back until I would give in, until I would submit and go his way. And I remember this. I remember this so clearly like it was yesterday. I remember praying up here in my head. God, I don't want to do this. You know I don't want to do this. But if this is what you want me to do, so be it. I'll be a pastor. And at that moment, all of that peace, that joy, that intimacy, that... It came back in. Now, it's not like my life did some radical trajectory from that point on. But something greater happened instead because as I stand here now and look back at what God chose to do for me and the radical turn he brought my life on, I can stand here today and tell you I would not trade it. I would not trade it for anything. Yeah, to be sure, there are days when I'm going, I should have been a garbage man, you know? We all have that. But when you look at the general curve, I wouldn't trade it for anything because I look back and I go, God cared about me. God had a design for me. Who am I? Why should he care about me? What difference does it make if I'm happy or not. But he chose me. He had a plan for me. He saw a different future for me, which I didn't know at the time, but can only say now in hindsight was better by far. And then there was the betrayal. I remember this vividly too. Being on this mountaintop with him some years later, growing in him, growing in my faith, having the cliches of the Bible of scales falling from your eyes, experiencing that, getting a hunger for him and a devotion to him until the moment when I betrayed him. So deeply. The details aren't important. I know you want them, but. <laughs> See, it wasn't just sin. We sin. We throw around the word sin. We know it's a big deal, but come on, really? But this, this was like betraying my best friend. A friend who had been with me since, what, two, three, four years old, as long as I could remember. I remember having this sense of deep betrayal that I sold out, gave up, turned my back on my best friend. And I'll tell you guys, it rocked me. 
It racked me to the core. And I remember feeling for the first time that I had thrown the most precious thing away and could never have it back again. Because how could a friend like that ever share in the same thing again after the way that I betrayed? I remember coming to terms with his holiness and goodness and my complete lack thereof. I remember for the first time Thinking things like, you're righteous and you're good and you're right to judge me. I deserve it because what I did to you deserves no forgiveness. Can't just be pushed away. But through an arduous time of my life that involves so much internal wrestling and pain, Learning what words like unconditional actually mean. Especially when words like love or grace are attached to it. Learning that, in fact, my friend died for times just as these. That my friend died for me learning a new way of seeing the world, the cosmos, and the fiber of this God humming within it. Well, as John writes, full of grace and truth, inviting me and giving me this thing called faith for the first time seeing it as a gift. There's this, this, this monk who was a follower of Jesus named Martin Luther who once wrote this. I cannot by my own reason or strength come to believe in Jesus as my Savior or Lord. <clears throat> that never made any sense to me. Of course I can by my own reason or strength come to believe in Jesus. What do you mean I can't by my own reason or strength believe? But see, what he knew about himself when he looked in himself, inside himself was that there was nothing good. When he looked inside himself, what he saw was a coward and a traitor as well. Someone who by nature hated God and would choose to rebel. Someone who was far from him and given the choice would probably not go his way. But even in the midst of that, God extending an invitation to him with these words, I love you anyway. I choose you anyway. Take this gift, this gift of faith, and receive it. Because faith is really so much more than just believing something is true. Faith is devotion, fealty. 
relationship. Faith is really saying, I pledge myself to you. And I learn that when someone offers you a gift, I mean a good gift, you know, a well-intentioned gift. I don't mean like getting your in-laws like puppies for Christmas or something, right? When someone offers you a gift, the best thing to do with a grateful heart is to simply say, thank you. This is why I believe. Or at least a sampling of some of the reasons. Now maybe you never grew up in two worlds. Maybe you never came face to face with suffering or death early in your life. Maybe you've never come face to face with real suffering or death ever. Maybe God has never talked to you in an inaudible voice or a vision or a dream. Maybe you've never had a sense of deep betrayal. No two journeys are the same, and you shouldn't expect that yours would be the same as mine, but I can tell you what is the same. That the same gift he offered me, he offers you to believe, to trust him, to turn to him and commit to him and pledge yourself to him. That invitation. is the same invitation that he makes to every single one of you. And this Christmas, I hope that you'll receive that gift to just put your hands wide and say, Lord Jesus, Thank you.